This week on the show, we have FreeBSD 11.3 being released, OpenBSD workstation setup, write your own fuzzer for the NetBSD kernel, exploiting the FreeBSD security advisory 1902.fd, streaming to Twitch using OpenBSD is an interesting one, and we also cover three different ways of dumping hex contents of a file and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 307, Twitching with OpenBSD, recorded on the 17th of July, 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschlick. And I'm Alan Jude. And we welcome you back to this week's episode of BSD Now, bringing you the freshest BSD news that we could find. And the headline starts with FreeBSD 11.3 has been released. The announcement is there, so it's official. Yes, uh, so the latest release in the 11 branch is available, uh, bring with it newer versions of the tool chain like Clang, LLVM, LLD, LLDB, and Compiler RT, uh, and uh, LibC++, etc. Uh, the ELF tool chain bits have also been updated to a newer version, the latest OpenSSL, improvements to ZFS, including parallel mounting. So that is, if you have many data sets, like hundreds or thousands, like some of my machines do, mount more than one at a time. So during startup, when you see it counting through the data sets it's mounting, that should go much faster now. Oh, good. That's not to be confused with the uh, multi-mount protection feature, which is coming, um, which is um, designed for a system where you have uh, disks in an external shelf that might actually be connected to two different computers and making sure you don't import the pool on two different machines at the same time, which could damage the pool. Um, that's a different thing that's coming, uh, but it's not this. Uh, there was a, a feedback email where someone was confused about the difference between parallel mounting and multi-mount protection. Okay, so we cleared that up. The other big change that comes is the work I did a couple of years ago to make Geli able to uh, have support in our bootloader so that you can boot from a fully encrypted disk has been extended to work on all platforms instead of only uh, x86. So thanks to uh, Ian and Kyle and Warner and everybody else who helped with that uh, means that you can now use this on ARM and, and other platforms as well. Excellent. I think Ian actually needed it on MIPS or ARM, one of the two for an appliance type thingy. Uh, and he managed to generalize the code so it works on all platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, the built-in version of package has been updated, uh, also provides newer KDE, GNOME, etc. Uh, and the kernel will now log the jail ID uh, when logging a process exit. So if a program crashes, uh, it would normally tell you a little bit about it in the log, but it also tell you which jail it was in, which might be quite helpful in figuring out what... It's like, oh, Nginx crashed. I'm like, which Nginx? In which jail? <laughs> Is that on the host or in the jail? <laughs> Several uh, feature additions and updates to Useland applications, uh, network drivers and firmware updates, etc. Also, they've extended the uh, Gone in 13 flag. So uh, if you're using features in FreeBSD 11.3 that will be removed in FreeBSD 13, you will now receive a warning each time you use it for the first time. This giving you more heads up that that's going away. Uh, since some people will possibly skip you know, from 11.4 to 13 or something like that, uh, skipping over all of 12, it didn't make sense to limit those uh, deprecation warning messages only to version 12. Mm, yeah, because they apply also now to this uh, release at least. Yep. Yeah. Also, uh, 
additional warnings have been added for some of the IPsec algorithms that will be deprecated as part of RFC 8221. Uh, so if you're using really, really bad old crypto in IPsec, you'll get a warning now uh, and recommendation that you update to some of the newer ones. The main advantage to that is most of those support hardware offload and you will get much, much better performance. Uh, and similar deprecation warnings have been added if you're using any of the weaker providers for Geli. Probably want to be using the AES XTS uh, for Geli. Um, but if you're using one of the older, less good ones, you will get a warning now. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so we'll be always safe and secure. Mm-hmm. Uh, reminder that under the relatively new policies of the FreeBSD project, uh, the release of FreeBSD 11.3 means that FreeBSD 11.2 will go end of life in three months. Yeah, so update if you haven't done so yet. It's quite a minor update. It's you know barely more than just applying the security fixes. Uh, so it's a nice, easy update. Uh, so we recommend that you do that sooner rather than later. So enjoy the new release if you are still on 11. And uh, yeah, report anything that you find or uh, something that you found or something that works better now, for example that we're always uh, looking forward to uh, from users using these releases or the project uh, as a whole. Uh, next up, we have OpenBSD is now my workstation uh, as an article. And this is basically starting off with a nice screenshot of uh, Puffy bootloader or no, it's not a bootloader, it's the NeoFetch. It starts with uh, why OpenBSD? You may ask, of course, uh, simply because it's the best tool for the job for me and for my new uh, to me, Lenovo ThinkPad T420. Uh, additionally, I do care about security and non-bloat in my personal operating systems. Business needs can have different priorities, to be clear. So um, they will detail uh, what their reasons are uh, for going with OpenBSD uh, and not new Linux, NetBSD, or FreeBSD, which they are more comfortable with using without issues. Uh, some of the challenges and frustrations they've encountered and also the opinions um, they found along the way. So they talk a bit about um, the history of OpenBSD they had. They're not new to OpenBSD or uh, the guy who wrote this. He's been using it off and on for over 20 years. The biggest time in his life was the earliest 2000s. So that's quite a while already. Uh, he was e even a Python port maintainer for a bit. I huh, see. Um, well, he was not only using it for the workstation, but also for production servers and network devices. So there's definitely a wider range of use. And so... Um, he mentions that OpenBSD's documentation is great, so that's one reason, and that the installation of OpenBSD is a breeze, and yeah, this the first thing that he mentions as a feature is the full disk encryption. Uh, I wish full disk uh, encryption of slash home encryption, uh, or the slash home, um, was baked into the installer so that it's available right away. Uh, the ability to retroactively apply full disk encryption would also be great, uh, like VeraCrypt on Windows. That is extremely difficult to do properly. Yeah, like after the fact, uh, difficult. But for now, he simply puts a password on boot via the BIOS, which may be good enough, uh, but the hard drive can be removed. There are always uh, small attack vectors here and there, but it's at, it's at least better than unencrypted. So there's a guide uh, to the soft rate uh, FDE full disk encryption uh, that, that he links from the post. Uh, and he's going to have to reinstall to get full, transparent, full disk encryption and uh, is not sure about how much of a performance hit that would be, uh, which is less than ideal, but would make it uh, where I or where he adds all the non-stock customizations to an Ansible playbook. Uh, there are also two updates uh, regarding ASNI on CPUs that are supporting it. 
uh, so the performance impact is minimal. And the second update talks about um, the full disk encryption, uh, which seems to be working fine without issue. Okay, the next thing that's listed is the wireless networking. So he wishes the extra firmware would be installed from the installer already, so he can leverage that the Intel Wi-Fi right away from the installer. They thought they picked that uh, Wi-Fi stuff once. Uh, maybe I configured the wired internet first, maybe. Um, they write, but when I did a question mark to see a Wi-Fi access point in the installer, he got nothing back and had to use the wired Ethernet, which is not a big deal. Uh, but if you're not in the vicinity of a you know a cable, then uh, it's difficult. But it's fairly easy to join the wireless network, and there's a few lines to uh, describe how that is done, and then running DHCP, of course. Yep, and it also talks about doing system updates and using binary packages, uh, power management using duas instead of sudo, uh, hyperthreading using the Xenocara desktop manager, uh, and so on, using XFCE, which is this author prefers. Using Thunderbird with GPG, which is what I do. It works very nicely. Talks about some of the applications he had trouble with, in particular, moving from Evernote, which doesn't have a, a FreeBSD or OpenBSD client available, other than the web app. Uh, and says, having been using it for 10 years and using it daily, it was a big shift. And so, talks a bit about that. Uh, and then also has trouble with virtualization. VirtualBox is not available on OpenBSD, and the Linux emulation was removed a while ago. So running virtual machines like I'm used to, using VirtualBox a lot at work and so on, uh, is problematic. VMD is cool tech, but it isn't quite useful for uh, the type of um, red team infosec stuff that he's trying to do. So he used uh, libvirt, uh, basically running KVM QMU virtual machines on a separate machine and controlling them from OpenBSD with libvirt. So yeah, he basically says his biggest pain points were Evernote uh, and VirtualBox. And uh, thanks to Blackheim on Twitter, who is originally the producer for BSDM, uh, and also Misha Peters, uh, who helped him get the Wi-Fi configuration correct. Yeah, so you see that OpenBSD can be a very decent um, workstation. So, time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we found an article from the NetBSD blog about writing your own fuzzer for NetBSD, kernel part one. Nice thing about that is that they go into detail about how to do that. So first, they start with how fuzzing works. The dummy fuzzer, <laughs> there's a little uh, graphic here with a uh, blindfolded rabbit throwing a knife at the uh, Wheel of Fortune, basically, <laughs> with uh, hex codes on it or hex addresses. It's got some hex addresses. It's got e no memory, <laughs> e bad fd, sig seg v, uh, e range, etc. So yeah, random hex and error codes. Yeah, and so that's why they write the easy way to describe fuzzing is to compare it to the process of unit testing a program, but with different input. Uh, this input can be random, like in the rapid example, or it can be generated in some way that makes it unexpected from standard execution perspective. And the simplest fuzzer can be written in a few lines of bash by getting n bytes from defrand or the random device and putting them to the program as a parameter. Okay, so that's very simple, but yet effective. Right, but if you're going to try every possible input, then it can get very time-consuming because you know, you're just giving random input of random lengths uh, and you're, you might have to do a lot of different tests before you find something. Uh, you know, right. If it turns out the bug only happens when you provide more than a kilobyte of input, 
and you just start with let's try one byte of every possible value and then two bytes so it can take a long time mm-hmm. or you do a specific sequence and when the program then crashes you need to stop at that sequence and then continue with the next one mm-hmm. uh, but yeah uh, as a basic thing that's the idea uh, the coverage and fuzzing part uh, is about what can be done to make fuzzing more effective if we think about fuzzing as a process uh, where we place data into the input of program, which is the black box, and we can only interact via input, not much more can be done. However, programs usually process different inputs at different speeds, which can be gi- uh, give us some insight into the program's behavior. During the fuzzing, we are trying to crash the program, so we need additional probes to observe the program's behavior. And they talk a bit about um, AFL, the American Fuzzy Lob, that's why the, the rabbit is, <laughs> is there as a picture. And um, that's one of the first successful fuzzers. It uses a technique where the program is compiled with injected traces for every execution branch instruction. And during the program execution, every branch is counted. And the analyzer then builds a graph out of the execution paths and explores the different interesting paths. So you cannot do that on every program. It needs the AFL traces in there. Right. But part of the idea is to look at it and be like, okay, when the program works, we always go through the if case, never the else case. So what do we have to change the input to force this to give us the else case? And then we can check that bit of the code. And the idea is to make sure that, you know, with the idea of coverage and coverage testing is to make sure that every different path in the code is actually tested so that you don't end up with, like, oh, if you do this one strange thing, you end up in this code that it turns out no one has ever run before. Hmm. Yeah, and that's where the bugs lure. Uh, usually. <laughs> and then there's uh, talk about KCOV modules because they ultimately want to port the AFL as a module to use that uh, to fuzz the kernel. And they describe how to do that by creating a KCOV module and then porting the AFL as the module. And then, of course, since every fuzzer is also a program, how do you debug your fuzzer? Uh, that's, I guess, a stage before fuzzing the fuzzer. Um, so debug your fuzzer. Everyone knows that kernel debugging is more complicated than programs running in the user space. Many tools can be used for doing that, and there's always a discussion about usability versus complexity of the setup. People tend to be divided into two groups. Prefer to use a complicated setup like kernel debugger with remote debugging, and those who like tools like printf and other simple debug interfaces, and they think those are sufficient enough. Uh, enabling the coverage brings even more complexity to kernel debugging. Everyone's favorite printf also becomes traced. So putting it inside the trace function will result in a stack overflow. Whoops. Also, touching any KCOV internal structures becomes very tricky and should be avoided if possible. And yeah, then they talk about an example debug uh, con printf that they developed to counteract that and then talk about future work, which I guess we will also cover. So it's good to read this article as an introduction and I, I'm fairly sure that we will cover future articles from this blog post series in the future. So this is just part one. So next up, we have a reminder about VBSDCon 2019, which will take place at the Hyatt Regency in Reston, Virginia, September 5th to 7th. Uh, And the call for papers is still open for a few more days. So hurry up and submit. Yep, through EasyChair. It's uh, easy, create an account. Uh, VBSDCon is is extra like sysadmin focused. So we'd really like to get a lot more, you know, sysadmin-y talks. Uh, But we need developer talks and user talks and all the talks. Yeah, as long as they're BSD-specific. Yes, please submit your BSD talk. Uh, Because that makes the conference uh, worthwhile going to. And also, we also, um, as developers, want to hear how you use BSD in Mm -hmm. your environment, in your context, in your whatever you 
uh, have as a as a job for the operating system, and that makes it interesting. And then maybe yeah, talk about this at a not just at the conference, but also in the hallway track. Um, so this is a three day conference, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, September fifth to the seventh. And yeah, check out the website and uh, don't forget, as Alan said, to submit something if you have an interesting talk. Yes, please submit. The program committee would really like more submissions. So please submit. <laughs> They're getting bored <laughs> with too few of them. Yeah, it's never good to have only that many conference uh, submissions um, if you want to really fill your program with good talks. There'll be some other stuff going on too. We're going to make it the conference fun and interesting, but uh, we would like to have as wide a selection of talks to pick from as possible uh, and also more idea on what people are interested in hearing about as well. Oh yeah, so that's a good opportunity to get uh, also to know the people behind because they're also um, developers going, of course, to Alan and I as well. And yeah, good opportunity to talk to people and um, discuss certain ideas or uh, projects that you're working on in the BSD space. Okay, up next, we found that uh, there is a way of exploiting the FreeBSD security announcement 19.02.fd. Yeah, so this is a, a security advisory for FreeBSD that came back out, uh, back in February. Um, and in the advisory, it was mentioned that, you know, it could lead to somebody being able to get root, but there was no proof of concept that existed at the time. So the security researchers over here at SecVault Security managed to to actually walk through that and show how it works. So if you're at all interested in how this stuff works or how you would build it, uh, it's available here. So they start off, Unix-like systems such as FreeBSD allow you to send file descriptors to other processes via Unix domain sockets. This can be, for example, be used to pass file access privileges to a receiving process. Uh, this concept can also be important in things like Capsicum, where you have uh, sandboxing, so you have a process that has some privilege, and it's going to spawn a child with less privilege, but it needs to be able to give it access to a file or something. So inside the kernel, a file descriptor, which is really just a number, an integer, uh, is actually used as an indirect reference to a C-struct that stores all the relevant information about the file object. It could be you know, a reference to the vnode on the file system, uh, the file's type, you know, is it a file or a directory or whatever, uh, and what access permissions it has, and so on. What really happens if a Unix domain socket is used to send a file descriptor to another process is that the receiving process inside the kernel gets a reference to that struct. You know, because each application uh, has a, or each process in the kernel has a separate file descriptor table. Most applications are using file descriptor three, four, and five, and so on. It's not a, a global number from the kernel. Each process has its own. And so uh, as the new file descriptor is a reference to the same object as the one from the, the sender, all information is inherited. For instance, this can allow the master process to give write access to a child process even if that child process wouldn't even normally be able to open the file or op not open it as being writable. The advisory describes uh, that FreeBSD 12.0 introduced a bug in this mechanism. As the file descriptor information is sent via a socket, the sender and receiver have to allocate buffers for that procedure. If the receiving buffer is not large enough, the FreeBSD kernel attempts to close the received file descriptor to prevent a leak of the resource from the sender. However, while the responsible code closes the file descriptor, it actually fails to release the reference uh, to the struct, uh, to the file object, uh, which eventually could be basically a memory leak. And the count of how many references there are, you could just keep going up until you wrap that around back to zero. 
the advisory further states that the impact of this bug is uh, possibly a local privilege escalation to gain root uh, or even maybe escape a jail. However, no proof of concept was provided by the advisory's authors. So this blog post catches up on that and describes their research into exploiting the bug in order to actually obtain root privileges. So in the next section, the bug itself is analyzed to make a statement about the bug class and you know what other exploitation primitives could be used against it. Uh, then they look at triggering the bug, uh, and then you know three imaginable exploit scenarios and strategies where you could actually make use of this, uh, including discussion of two attempts they had that actually failed. And then lastly, uh, the working exploit primitive is discussed and introduces uh, a new exploitation technique for these kind of vulnerabilities in FreeBSD. Uh, and then lastly, wrap up with a conclusion and points out some further steps if you're interested in continuing the work. And they mentioned that all references in the code, are like line numbers, are references to the vulnerable source tree from shipped to the original 12.0 release, and they have a link to uh, where you can grab the tarball of that source code. So uh, they start with the bug analysis. They say, to get a first hint about the origin of the bug, we look at the original patch that introduced the bug, uh, R343790 of the FreeBSD12 release engineering branch. And you can see that it changed from, if error is zero, then F drop the counter there. Or sorry, it changed from just closing the file descriptor to also dropping the reference. Ah. Only a single call in the function mdispose external control in the file uicp syscalls was added. The bug was therefore introduced because the function lacks a call to the macro f drop, which drops a reference to the file struct. Uh, so the natural question is, what is the purpose of this macro? So then they go look at that. I see. Yeah. And then they see where uh, they use uma z free, which is a uma is a slab allocator thing in the FreeBSD kernel. So they say this is an internal kernel function which frees an allocated chunk of memory from the heap. It is beyond the scope of the document to discuss how uh, UMA works and so on. But they have some links mentioned that, you know, as always, the best reference for most of this stuff is the design and implementation of the FreeBSD operating system by uh, McCusick, uh, Neville Neal, and Watson. And then they look at the vulnerable path. Uh, they have lots of code examples, and they show making a little application to do this. And so then they look at the exploitation strategies. The first is using a set UID program. One of the simplest strategies is uh, the following. Is it possible to trigger the, this use after free and executing some set UID program like the password command, resulting in a dangling file descriptor to a file owned by root, uh, including all those capabilities? An exploit would need to place the struct file object uh, exactly into the file zone bucket where needed. If the setuid program opens a file owned by root, master.password, or libmap.conf in a way that's writable, it could be possible to write to this file from the user-controlled context. Let's say, in theory, this strategy works. A proof of concept can be found in the setuid testclient.c and testserver.c. And they note that the uh, server has to be root-owned and made setuid for this example to work. They say, however, finding such a program turned out to be trickier than expected. Most utilities in the standard installation open interesting files read-only or close them too fast. So then they look at uh, memory corruption or exchanging the file object during the write uh, and so on. So they also look at uh, escalating to root 
you know, as I described in the previous section, the strategy is basically a time of check, time of use attack uh, on the write syscall. So write is called for a file which is writable by the user. The syscall will first check if the file referenced by the file descriptor is indeed writable by the user or results in an error otherwise. After the check is passed, the use after free vulnerability is triggered and a root-owned read-only file is opened by the user right after that. Check uh, works the following way. The write syscall results in a call to the kernel function syswrite, which subsequently calls kern write v in the same file, uh, which then calls fget write. The latter is defined in kern descript, obviously because it's file descriptors. Uh, this function is used to retrieve destruct file object for the file descriptor and check for the write capabilities. So to do this, uh, the function calls uh, underscore fget to get the file struck. Anyway, and it also calls do file write to actually do the work and so on. And so they walk through all that. That's quite long. Yep. yep. And they also have, uh, they talk a bit about using libmap uh, in order to basically uh, create a dynamic library which copies uh, bin sh to some other file and makes it set UID so that when you do manage to uh, do this, basically, if you can write to the libmap file by using this exploit, then you can make it so that it uses a bad version of libutil instead of the stock version. And then next time somebody runs su or some set UID program, it will run your evil library, which will make a copy of the shell binary that set UID root. So then you just have to come back and run that and you'll have root access. Again, this vulnerability is patched. So they say, in conclusion, the past blog post showed the exploitation of a simple yet easy to overlook vulnerability in FreeBSD. While the use after free trigger was quite simple to develop, the research to find a way to exploit the vulnerability needed a lot more effort. The main reason for this seems to be a reasonably good engineering of the kernel code and the sparse landscape of write-ups on FreeBSD vulnerabilities. The author hopes that this blog post does contribute well to the latter and does uh, help at least more of his neighbors during their own research. To the best of the knowledge of this author, this blog post is the first to describe a working exploit for this particular vulnerability. The exploitation technique itself uh, should come handy in similar situations, which trigger a use after free in the file uh, zone in the FreeBSD kernel allocator. Uh, without major changes to the kernel code, this same uh, technique should remain. Moreover, the elegance of uh, logic exploits uh, comes to shine when using this exploit without modification on other installations on even different CPU architectures like ARM. Right. Uh, they do say there are some further steps should be mentioned. At the moment, the exploit technique only works on UFS. While this was the standard file system in the past, nowadays ZFS is widely adopted for FreeBSD installations. However, the technique does not work with ZFS because the dirty buffer mechanism is different. Therefore, the msleep is never triggered, which uh, renders the race unreliable. The chances are high that another delay mechanism could be found, uh, but currently it only works against UFS. The code to render the race condition reliable by doing a lot of parallel writes to create dirty buffers seems inelegant. Therefore, um, maybe there is another way to create a write delay. Um, that was the quickest, but at the time, that was the quickest way they found. And last but not least, there are maybe different uh, ways to exploit the vulnerability. For example, one could think about uh, tricking a set UID program to read from a file it does not intend to read from, such as tricking SU into reading from a user-provided version of PAM. 
of a PAM config file that maybe says everybody can sue. It's fine. Uh, no worries. What could possibly go? Oh. <laughs> and then they have all the details of their testing setup if you want to recreate any of this and they have their patches and so on. All right. Next up, we have a little uh, streaming how-to for you, for the people who are uh, into Twitching or into using Twitch. Uh, this is for streaming to Twitch using OpenBSD. And if you ever wanted to make a Twitch stream from your OpenBSD system, this is now possible. Thanks to OpenBSD developer THFR, um, who made a wrapper named FoxStream using FFmpeg with relevant parameters. The setup is quite easy. It only requires a few steps in searching on Twitch websites uh, to information that you need. Uh, hopefully, uh, it's easy enough to you found the links already. So um, preparation steps, basically, you register. Well, <laughs> who would have thought that you need to <laughs> register to uh, connect to Twitch? Then you get your streaming uh, API key, which is your unique uh, username, basically. And uh, then you choose your nearest uh, server from this page. And there's a link to that. Um, add in your shell environment uh, a little variable called Twitch uh, to your ser uh, server from step three. This is the, the, the closest server to you with your API key. Then you get Foxstream um, from uh, uh, OpenBSD's... Oh, that's no, not OpenBSD's CVS. Um, it's the developer's CVS, yeah. The, the authors. Then you make that executable, and then you allow the recording from microphone and recording of the output sound. Like we do, <laughs> Alan and I. Uh, <laughs> By default... OpenBSD blocks those, and so you have to uh, specifically allow them. So that no one can listen into you uh, in malicious ways. Now, using Foxstream. Foxstream scripts, uh, or that script itself, comes with a readme.md file containing some useful information. You can also check the usage. Uh, it's just uh, Foxstream from the command line. Starting a stream. When you start a stream, take care of your API key isn't displayed on the stream. Yeah. Um, here, you redirect standard error to defnull, so all the output containing the key is not displayed, and it's basically a couple of parameters, and uh, you basically define the screen resolution, uh, I think the bitrate, the, the Twitch variable need, you need to reference, of course, to have the API key, and if you choose a smaller resolution in your screen, imagine a square of that resolution starting at the top left corner of your screen, the content of the square will then be streamed. And uh, they also recommend a BWMNG package, uh, which is a port um, uh, to view your real-time bandwidth usage so you can see uh, how much you're uh, consuming. And then if you see that this bandwidth reaches a fixed number, this means you reached um, your limit and the stream is certainly not working correctly. You should uh, lower your resolutions a little bit so that people can still enjoy your stream. Well, in particular, the dash B4000 there is making a 4 megabit output. Oh. You'd want to lower that to some number that makes sense for your bandwidth. And it also covers uh, how to overlay a webcam on top uh, in one of the corners of your video or whatever. I just have one note for that one that uh, obviously this works with things other than Twitch as well. Uh, you know, you can put in the RTMP URL for YouTube or Facebook or whatever, and you can stream to there as well. Yeah. Uh, another option is there's an open source program called OBS, or Open Broadcaster Studio. There's a port on FreeBSD. I don't know if anyone's done one for OpenBSD, but the software should just work. It's pretty straightforward X software, but it gives you an actual graphical application where you can composite multiple layers, like you can have a video file playing or uh, capture your screen and then composite uh, some text over it and, and put a, your webcam capture over it. Uh, 
and it gives you a nice GUI for doing all this and also lets you easily do scene switching and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use this heavily at Scale Engine for testing and so on, uh, but also Jupyter Broadcasting, the podcast network, has switched to using it instead of Wirecast, which is the program they used to do to do that, uh, which cost $1,000 per copy. And doing that with open source software is better and it's free. <laughs> yeah, see? Uh, OBS even goes so far as to support green screening. Uh, so you can actually get quite a fancy setup going from your OpenBSD or FreeBSD box using that. Oh, that's not too bad. Oh, another thing we mentioned was that this uh, script or whatever, um, or any of them, will also work with Scale Engine's uh, live video streaming, uh, which is available free to BSD user groups. So uh, if you're going to use this to stream a BSD user group and you'd you know, rather not have it on uh, YouTube with ads, uh, you can just get in touch with Scale Engine and we'll set you up. Very cool. So I guess we'll create a couple more uh, streamers this way. Uh, the, the Graphly application is a bit easier, but you can do it with a command line like this. Uh, or if you check out the slides from uh, Tom Jones's talk at EuroBSDCon last year, it covers how to do this with uh, HDMI capture stuff. So a slightly modified version of that would work very well for capturing like an Xbox or a PlayStation if you want to stream that via your OpenBSD or FreeBSD machine. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, or if you just want to, say, capture the laptop from the speaker at your BSD user group, which is more what Tom was actually talking about. But whether it's for gaming or presenting, this stuff all works quite nicely on all the BSDs. So try it out and happy twitching. So it's time for the Beastie Bits this week. We, in our previous segment, we talked already about BSD user groups, and this one is uh, already meeting and meeting in different places. It's the Portland BSD Pizza Night. Uh, this time, they're meeting on the 25th of July at, at 7 p.m. at Rudy's Gourmet Pizza. Oh, that's a, that's a name. That should definitely yep. be a good quality pizza you get there. Uh, if you're interested in meeting up with a bunch of BSD folks from a bunch of different BSDs uh, and eating pizza and drinking or just hanging out and talking about stuff, then you should come out. Yeah. Uh, then there's Noxbuck, the Noxville BSD user group. And they also have uh, something special here. A special guest. Yep. Michael W. Lucas with 20 years in jail. That'll be Monday, July 29th at 6 p.m. Oh, yeah. Still time to get there. It's based on, the, on his book, FreeBSD Mastery Jails, and he talks about what you can do with jails, how they got started, and uh, properties, jail management, all the important things that are covered also in the book. And um, yeah, he writes, or the description is, you leave with an understanding of what modern jails can and cannot do, and hints for future development. Uh, and the meeting will be at the IX Systems office, which is by the Foothills Mall on uh, Keller Lane in Marysville, Tennessee. Oh, excellent. Michael Lucas and the IX folks. That's a good uh, connection in the BSD space here. All right. Uh, then we move from the BSD user groups to Ohio Linux Fest. Uh, the call for paper closes August 17th. So if you want to give a talk, definitely submit for uh, the Ohio Linux Fest. Yes, Ohio Linux Fest uh, has a long tradition having some BSD-focused talks, and we'd like to keep that up. So that requires people to give BSD-focused talks at Ohio Linux Fest. Yeah, they have a range of topics, um, general sysadmin, DevOps, cloud computing, big data, machine learning. So wherever you might uh, be using BSD or uh, any other interesting part of the BSD ecosystem, then definitely submit to those. Chances are you are accepted and give the talk. And then lastly, uh, they were looking at as 
somebody who's at their university and they're in the process of moving their computer science department uh, and then wrapped up on a shelf by internetworking with TCP IP and Windows Internals 4, they found the design and implementation of the FreeBSD operating system. I mean, these are the books you need to have on your bookshelf, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Keep them close. Well, what they need to do is get the second edition, because that's the first edition. That too. <laughs> and put it next to the original one, so we have all the uh, <laughs> DNI books in uh, logical, chronological order. And for bonus, you need to collect the uh, signatures from the authors. I think one of my two copies has all three signatures. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to get all of these, um, but it's not impossible. You can definitely get them when you hang around in the BSD space. Uh, and last but not least, we have found three different ways of dumping hex contents of a file. So this might be something you might not do every day, but uh, it's, it's still important to know what this is about. So at times when you're doing any conversion of ASCII to hex or to octal, uh, we would like to view the hex contents or the hex dumps of the file, be it ASCII or binary. Uh, let us see in this article uh, how to do that. And they started with a simple file one, which only contains a welcome string, just welcome. And then they describe how to use hex dump and other utilities like OD. Yeah, so they just run hex dump on the file and you see uh, the first column is actually the offset in the file. So all zeros first, and then a bunch of strings. And the next line is starts with an eight, meaning that's eight bytes into the file, and that's the end of the file in that case. But whereas if you do hex dump dash capital C, you can see it actually prints it out as individual bytes. It's a little easier to see the hex. And then on the far right side, you see the actual ASCII. So you can see, you know, that 77 corresponds to W. Uh, and 6C corresponds to the L. And then the last character is actually 0A, which is the new line character. Yeah, that also needs to be there. And then you can see how, again, you can do OD-X, gives you the same output as hex dump, basically. And then uh, if you add the dash C, then it can print the individual characters as well. Oh, yep. Very cool. Yep. And then XXD is somewhat similar to hex dump-C, but slightly different without the pipe delimiters and so on, and so on. These are good to have in your Unix toolbox in case you need to do some hexy hexing. Uh, they also show here, if you take output of XXD and put it in a file, if you do XXD-R, it will reverse the hex content and give you back the ASCII. Ah, good uh, to compare that the input is actually also reversible into the output. Right, or you know, if you get the hex for something, you can always figure out what it means. <laughs> <laughs> It's time for feedback and questions, as always. And uh, definitely send us feedback and questions every week, or, well, at least often enough so that we can fill this uh, segment or this part of the show. Sebastian did this uh, with a ZFS setup question toward ESX. So we start with him. And his message goes, Hi, Alan and Benedict. I'm a first-timer writer, that's okay, uh, but long-time watcher and Patreon contributor. Excellent, thank you. Um, thank you for a great show and for the boost that you've been to my career. Oh, wow. I, we weren't aware of that. But yeah, here we go. Um, I was watching my uh, Why We Still Love ZFS Part 2 in this Monday's or Yeah, this Monday. And Alan, you piqued my, piqued my interest when you mentioned the use of ZFS with ESXi, which brings me to my question. Uh, a while back, I built a 4U Xeon E5-2620 uh, FreeNAS with 64 gigs of ECC memory. 
I also recently received an HP ProLine G7 DL360 from my employer and have just installed VMware ESXi 6.7 on it. My initial thought was that I would create an iSCSI share with a Z-Vault from one of my pools. However, if I understood you correctly, there's a plugin for ESXi that would be able to manage this for me in a seamless manner. Uh, would you care to elaborate on this and maybe share a few pointers on how to best uh, process, uh, proceed with that setup? Um, so it depends. Like, there's not really a dedicated plugin or something, but you have a couple of options. One option is to have a separate Zvol for each VM, which would be, you know, a matter of every time you want to make a new VM, you have to create the iSCSI thing in FreeNAS and then hook it up to ESX and so on. The other option is to create one large Zvol and have VMware format it with its VMFS or whatever. Um, and that way, you can keep adding and removing VMs from it, and it's all kind of managed by VMware. You do still have to, like, you have to create the Zvol on the FreeNAS side still. Uh, it's just a matter of, do you want to do it once and just give all the space to VMware and it can use it how it likes? Or do you want to actually create uh, a separate iSCSI for each different VM? Yeah. The advantage to the one bigger Zvol is obviously the kind of unused space from a bunch of VMs is available to yet another VM. <laughs> you can never have enough, yeah. And once the setup is in place, I guess you will spin up a lot more VMs because, oh, I could do this or I could try this out in another different VM. So he writes that he doesn't have any dedicated fiber channel, but have set up a separate VLAN for iSCSI and have two dedicated NICs for this in both uh, the FreeNAS and the SXI server. Right. Uh, so depending on your speed, you know, you can get even... Um you could use 10 gigabit NICs and stuff. Fiber channel is definitely not a requirement. Yeah, it's it's easy to get started with just uh, the basic, uh, what, the, what the NIC gives you. Yeah, and uh, that couple of NICs is, is probably going to be fast enough uh, for what you're doing anyway. Would you recommend some kind of um, uh, lag setup for this? Uh, yeah, if you're going to use multiple NICs, you probably want to do that. Uh, you do have to make sure that, you know, it, it depends on your setup. Like if a switch is involved, you have to make sure the switch isn't going to be silly about it. Uh, some Cheaper switches only do lags based on MAC addresses. And so obviously your FreeNAS has one MAC address and your ESX has one. And so all the traffic is going to go off for one side. Whereas if you can figure all the components to hash based on the TCP port number, that way, in, basically, you're hashing usually either layer two, which is MAC addresses, layer three, which is IP addresses, or layer four, which is port number. And usually includes the lower ones too. So if you can get it to do on the combination of IP address and port number, it means that if you actually have two different connections, they'll actually load balance nicely. Yeah. Uh, but that might actually involve you would need two different Zvols or uh, two different iSCSI sessions in order to actually take advantage of more than one link. Oh, yes. Yeah. But yeah, definitely something to start with. And uh, to, it shouldn't be too difficult, especially since FreeNAS helps you a lot uh, with uh, that graphical interface. Yes. Uh, Dave in the chat room points out FreeNAS does have support for VAI, which is this kind of API for VMware to talk to the storage. Um, but I think that's more about having it do server-side copying and cloning and stuff. So if you want to uh, duplicate a VM or something, it can do it on the server side instead of having to copy it all across the network and then all back across the network. Uh, you can just say, hey, on the server side, copy these blocks to those blocks or zero this range of blocks and so on but it should just work let us know how it goes and if you get stuck yeah send us a follow-up question 
then you're not the first time submitter anymore. <laughs> Which is fine. I mean, if it's just a question and that solves all your issues, then perfectly reasonable to uh, not send us more <laughs> until the next problem occurs. Christopher is next uh, with questions, so multiple ones, um, writing, Hi, Alan and Benedict. First of all, thanks for the show. Thank you. Uh, I especially enjoyed higher audio quality on the road since episode 301. Uh, see, someone got a uh, better audio experience from that. Yes. Extra thanks to Joe and Drew for the editing. Yeah, they're doing a great job. And uh, for us, it's a little bit, uh, it's not too yeah, difficult to, to do that. Uh, especially because I've never really watched the videos on YouTube. Okay, so audio only, that's fine. Uh, since you've asked, I have a question for you. Sorry that it's a ZFS question. Oh, uh, we're totally fine with the occasional ZFS question here and there, uh, which seems to be a pattern in the show. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, almost ZFS now. Um, okay, so is there a way to get a mail notification if something happens to the Zpool? I have used ZFS event daemon, ZED, on CentOS previously, but I'm unable to find anything similar on FreeBSD. At the moment, I'm using SmartD to get a notification on a drive failure, but a pool could be degraded for reasons not catched by that. Ah, he has also found devd slash zfs.conf, but it seems uh, he's unable to configure it properly and can't find a list of potential events to listen for. Uh, do we have any hints here? Yeah, okay. Um, for the mail notifications, the zpool status check is done daily as part of the daily run report that FreeBSD does. So if you can figure root's email to go to you, you should get that. Yes, something like Z or ZED is ZFSD on FreeBSD, which takes care of automatically enabling spares and so on, but it doesn't really do email. The DevD ZFS stuff is probably the right place to look. So DevD gets a notification from ZFS every time there's an event that's basically using the same mechanism that ZED does on, um, on CentOS. The list of events is defined in the ZFS source code somewhere. It's really something that probably should have a man page. That's an interesting idea. Good project for someone uh, who's just getting started and would like to help out with ZFS is basically there's a, a .h file with a list of all the event types and a little bit about them, and you could learn a little bit more about them and then just write some documentation on the ZFS wiki uh, or write the man page if you're adventurous, and we can get that included as part of this open ZFS project. Uh, so those could definitely be made to email you. But yeah, something like the ZFS event daemon that could do a little bit more and take care of notification type stuff would be kind of interesting. Some um, monitoring systems have some kind of zpool uh, monitoring in there, but if you really want to know um, this disappeared or the actual status of the pool, right? Like we have checks at Scale Engine that tell us, you know, if the zpool status is anything other than online and so on. That's basically just running zpool list dash o status or something like that, or name comma status. And it gives us a list of every pool and what its status is. Uh, and it's easy to parse, go from there. So yeah, for email, if you enable the default FreeBSD daily mails, that'll help. Although you'd actually have to look at them. It's not really a notification per se. There, there are lots of different ways to do it, but there's not a standard way. Maybe there should be. Or maybe someone has written something uh, customized. I'm sure lots of people have things for this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Uh, like my friend Mikey literally does zpool status to a file and defives it. And if it's not the same as it was when he set up the script, uh, it sends an alert. So it finds any change because uh, he, he doesn't want to know just if the pool is degraded. He wants to know if any of the error counters go up or if anything changes at all. So if he does a scrub monthly, wouldn't the 
different timestamp trigger an alarm? Well, I think he compares it to what it was yesterday. So he only sends an email ah, okay. each time it changes. Yeah, because otherwise every month you get the notification that something has changed and it was just a scrub. Yeah, so if someone has something, send this to us or um, send us a note uh, to feedback at bsdnow.tv so we can include it in a future episode. Thanks for that question. Funzi, I guess that's the German pronunciation. Yeah, sorry we didn't have a better answer for you. Uh, we really should. Last but not least is uh, Sarah, I guess, uh, with Beehive and Microsoft SQL question. Oh, that's an interesting combination. Writing, hi all, I'm new to FreeBSD and I wanted to explore the possibility of virtualizing an old machine running Windows Server 2008 with Windows SQL. I haven't found much information describing possible problems, if there are any, and the only relevant posts I found here were in the FreeNAS forums, where he links to two um, about Beehive Windows SQL Server and set, uh, setting the disk sector size. Uh, should I avoid using Beehive in this case? Are there any workarounds in the case described? Would really appreciate your comments. So um, I'm actually not aware of any problems, but um, I haven't digged into it too deep uh, or haven't have run it in that specific combination, uh, uh, Windows Server and Windows SQL, because I stay away from that stuff as much as possible. Um, but there's a need for people. Uh, definitely, it should be something that... Um, is possible. The problem here was that by default, Beehive uh, passed through the block size of the virtual device that you backed the VM with. And all supported versions of Beehive now have an option when you create a virtual disk to let you specify the sector size. Oh. Um, because I know older versions of Windows SQL Server didn't like having large sectors. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. They want small ones. They're kind of picky about that. Uh, so, yeah. Um, just setting it as part of the, the Beehive invocation is the solution now. Uh, it's a problem that's been solved for a while now. Oh, okay. So that's good to hear. If you're using the FreeNAS GUI to do it, it's a little different. But if you're just doing it manually on FreeBSD, then yeah, just when you're defining the disk, as you can see in the Beehive man page, when you're setting the disk, you have the extra parameter. One of the many now. <laughs> You see, it says block device options, and you can do sector size equals logical slash physical. You can even emulate disks that lie, that are actually 4K, but pretend to be 512 byte. You can actually do that by doing sector size equals 512 slash 4096. And so, yeah, that's been a built-in feature in Beehive for a while now, and should be available in all supported versions of FreeBSD as of today. I guess this will also make its way into the FreeNAS GUI as one point, so you can uh, just activate it there. Yeah, I've just I've not done it there, so I don't know exactly how to do it, but I'm sure that it's a common enough thing that they've taken care of that. Okay, great to see that things are already fixed. Uh, so get the references there in the man page from Beehive, and then you should be on your way. Thanks for sending that question, and that pretty much wraps up this week's episode of Beastie Now. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. 